Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Good morning, Crossway Church. Please turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're going to begin there. And uh, hello to those watching online. We love you and miss you. Look forward to your return. It's good to be together with God's people this morning. Well, last week we began our series on biblical fellowship. We call it experience. Thank you, brother. We're going to partake together at the Lord's table at the end of the meeting, so I appreciate the ushers looking out for me. Thank you. Uh, We've gotten our series on biblical fellowship. We call it experience. We call it that because we usually teach this, this series in our Tuesday night classes, and we want everyone in that class to get a taste of what it's like. So we have uh, a seven-week class, and at the end of that, or, or towards the end of that, we, um, we really, uh, well, at the end of each class, we, uh, we take some time for questions, and, and we have some discussion. And um, we want to give everyone a taste of what our small groups are like, because the class serves as sort of an orientation to our small groups. Today is, uh, is session three out of seven. Now, in the first session, we talked about where fellowship begins. It begins with Jesus. Uh, We have fellowship with one another because he brought us into fellowship with God. He gave his life so that we could live, not for ourselves or to ourselves, but so that we could live for him. Living for him is the only true life. And so fellowship begins with Jesus. You remember that? And the second session, last week, we talked about the irreducible occupation of fellowship, and that's being together. Irreducible occupation. Christians have an occupation, and that's being together with one another. And you, remember, you may remember our main proposal from last week. It was this. If I could have that first slide, please. Get together with your brothers and sisters so that fellowship can happen. Get together with your brothers and sisters so that fellowship can happen. There we go. So to this point, we belong to Jesus, and because of that, we have fellowship with God. And since we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. Now we take a step into those realities, and we get together. We spend time together. Just getting together provides a spark of encouragement. We can start up in the Lord just by seeing each other's faces. And once we get together, whether it's here on Sunday morning or in our small groups, we don't want to just simply sit and stare at one another. That that would not be too edifying. It would be a little strange, a little awkward. No. Once we get together, we want to engage with one another. But engage in what? Engage in what way? What biblical convictions or principles should guide us in our conversation with one another? What should our manner toward one another, what should that manner be? Here's a simple proposal to give us direction this morning. So here's our proposition for this morning. Since he gives more grace we will give more encouragement. Since He gives more grace, we will give more encouragement. And that's our manner. That's our approach to one another. That's the attitude that guides our demeanor. I should want to see you, I should come into our meeting together with a desire to see you uplifted, with a desire to see you strengthened. Think about the word encourage. It means to put courage into. I should meet together with you. You should meet together with me with a a desire, a sincere want to put courage into one another. And I should do what I can to see that this happens in you. Why? Why should this be my attitude? Well, it's because of what we've received from Him. Once again, this truth, this idea that's up on the screen right now, it doesn't just apply to anyone. No, when I say He gives 
more grace. I mean specifically, He gives grace. He gives more grace to those that trust Him. Not just to anyone, but only to those that belong to Him. He gives His people. He gives to us. To you, brother and sister. To me. He gives to us more grace. More grace. And because of that gift, we can, we should, we will, we will take that grace and pass it on to one another in the form of encouragement for our brothers and sisters. Remember last week, remember the Scripture we looked at, Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25. Remember how it begins. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, we engage, when we engage one another with attitudes and words of encouragement, we stir one another up to love and to good works. So let's go a bit deeper into this truth, this idea that since He gives more grace, we will give more encouragement. First of all, He gives more grace. He gives more grace. He, here, as you probably know, is Jesus, our Savior. And you probably also noticed that I've inserted the word more into this sentence, right? So, so point one does not simply say He gives grace, which is entirely true and necessary for our very salvation for, um, for any hope in this life, for, for salvation, for hope in this life. It's true and necessary that He gives grace to us. But this, this point, this, this first point today, but He gives more grace, it's a comparative statement. Not only does our Lord give us grace so that we might be saved and belong to Him, but He gives so much grace to us, to, to those that belong to Him, that it overwhelms something else. We get more grace from Him then there is something else in our lives. And let's figure out what it is that the grace that He gives us, let's figure out what it overwhelms. Turn to James chapter 4 in your Bibles. If you haven't already, turn to James chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through the first part of verse 7. So James chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll read from there and go into the first part of verse 7. James 4, 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, if you know the book of James, you know that he says some really hard-hitting things. It's great for um, a hard-headed guy like myself. I need that kind of direct language sometimes. He gets right to us. He gets right to where we live. He gets right to our thinking, right to the, the point of motivation. And this portion here is no exception. Make sure I'm the right portion. Uh, verses 1 to 2 tell a sordid tale about humanity. But not just about humanity, because he, he's writing it to believers, right? It's not just any people, he's writing it to 
God's people, those that belong to Jesus, those that have already received the grace of salvation. He's writing to us. He's writing for us. He's saying that God knows the reason for the conflicts that we have with one another. It's because we want something. We covet. We crave. And because of what's in our hearts, we end up in opposition to brothers and sisters in Christ. James goes further. He says that even our prayers are hindered by our covetousness. So first, covetousness ruins our relationship with one another, but then it becomes an obstacle to our fellowship with God. Look again at verse 3. Do you see that there, verse 3? We want something, and so we actually go to the Lord and ask for it. That's right and good. We should make our requests known to the Lord. We actually pray. But when the Lord doesn't give us what we ask for, um, He doesn't give it because we're asking selfishly. We want to spend what the Lord gives us on ourselves. We're, We're asking. We might be putting the best face on it, but really inside us, we might not even acknowledge it. We might tell others we have all kinds of good intentions. It's been funny to me. I've been a pastor for about uh, 25-some years, 26-some years, something like that, multiple times over the years. People have come to me and said, I pray and I ask the Lord to help me hit the lottery. And I I want you to know, if I hit it, I'm going to give that money to the church. Guess what? They didn't hit the lottery. I suspect that they didn't understand their own motives. That they weren't going to give all the money to the church. (laughs) When the Lord doesn't give us what we ask for, well, at least sometimes, at least many times, it's because we're asking because we want to spend it on ourselves. We're asking selfishly. And God, as the good Father, says to us, no, that will be destructive. In this case, I'm not going to give you what you ask for because you don't even understand how destructive that will be for you. And, you know, what do we do? We pout, we sulk, we become unbearable. And so, you know this, whether it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, these precious gifts of the Holy Spirit, like Gordon shared a word with us this morning. The Spirit compelled him, and he came and he shared. Thank you, Gordon. You did that for us, brother, wherever you are out there. Whether it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit or any good thing, God does not give us gifts to simply spend on ourselves, on our comfort, on our promotion. When the Lord gives us gifts, what's it for? It's for the purpose of using them for the good of others. And it's worth emphasizing this. Paul writes in Acts chapter, uh, or Paul, uh, uh, Luke writes in Acts chapter 20, excuse me. He writes in Acts chapter 20, in all things I have shown you, uh, but he's, excuse me, Luke is writing what Paul says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But when we covet What we're saying is the greatest thing is to get. And to get, get, get. We need to be honest with ourselves, don't we? So James has showed us that our cravings are hurting all of our critical relationships with each other and with God. And he's not going to mince words when it comes to summing this all up, is he? Here's verse 4 again. Let me put it up on the screen. and, and, And look at this. I mean... What did I do? Did I have the wrong passage up there this whole time? No, wait a minute. There we go. You desire and do not have. So you murder. It's James writing to God's people, to us. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight 
and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, adulterous people. Can you imagine such a speech today? People are so precious today, so precious that they can hardly bear to look someone else in the eye when they're disagreeing about something, let alone take a true look at themselves in the mirror and be honest about what they see there. There's a book title out there for several years now that just gets at all of this so well. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. The Coddling of the American Mind. It hasn't been good for us. But come on. For you and me, God's people, God's children, disciples of Christ, let us look in that mirror and let us admit it. James is nailing it, isn't he? He's sticking it to us right now, isn't he? He's right on the money when it comes to you and me, isn't he? That's me up on that screen. I know it. Some of you know it about me. And it's you up on that screen, isn't it? He's putting it right to us. If we're honest... When we look into the mirror of God's word, that's for us. And the strength of the language, that's for us too. So that we don't miss it, so that we get it, so that we humble ourselves. You're going to see that in just a moment. Now, though, and he's been talking about this covetousness and this breaking of, of relationships with God's people, with brothers and sisters, and this breaking of relationship, this hindering of relationship with God and And then he goes right at them and says, you're adulterous. You're you're adulterous people. But now his writing takes a turn, a very good turn. Because as hard-hitting as James is, he's not just hard-hitting when it comes to sin. He's also hard-hitting when it comes to encouragement. And this takes an encouraging turn. The Lord never leaves us without hope. He's honest with us. He's real with us. He requires us to be real. But he never leaves us in just the judgment, right? Remember Isaiah, hope through judgment. God's last word to his people is always hope. It's never judgment. And so we come to the next verse, verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You see, after all that we are, adulterous people, spiritual adulterers, just like the Israelites. That's why we study the Israelites, why God gave us scriptures about the Israelites, so that we could see ourselves in the mirror. After all that, what is God's attitude toward his people? What is it? Is it simply destruction? Is it just the wrath of his judgment as just as that judgment is? No, indeed, no. Instead, he is jealous for us. He loves us, his people, and he's jealous for us. He wants us to delight in him. He he wants our hearts to turn to him. He he doesn't want our hearts to be set on these earthly things that are self-destructive. He wants us to lay aside any thought that something else will satisfy us. And he wants us to put away our destructive, foolish, self-harmful ways. And and you really see this in the next verse, James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you see God's incredible heart toward you? In spite of our sin and the corruption that seeks to eat away at our souls, despite the fact that we run after the very things that would destroy everything of value in our lives and would destroy us, 
Despite all of that, the Lord doesn't leave us to languish in our cravings and covetous desires, our selfishness. He's already given us grace when He saved us. We didn't earn that, right? That's what grace is. It's unearned. We didn't deserve salvation, right? Jesus gave Himself in spite of our rebellion. And He saved us while we were still His enemies. He dies for us. And even now, even while we know the tension of our flesh, warring against the new creation spirit that God has caused to live inside of us, bringing life where there was death. Each of us knowing, when we look at that passage, each of us knowing we're not as pure-hearted as we should be, as we wish we were, even now, He's giving grace to us. And He's giving us more grace, more than the sin inside of us, more than the covetous cravings, so that He can overcome and overwhelm our self-destructive ways. And we can walk in the goodness of His grace. He's giving us grace. He's giving us more grace. More grace than sin. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace enough to cover our sin, to cleanse us and to cause us to persevere in Him, each one of us receiving more grace. He gives more grace. And since He gives more grace, we will give more encouragement. Let's take a look at that second point. He gives more grace, and we should be sensitive to that grace. We should be sensitive to it. I I mean... I don't even like using the word sensitive, like I mentioned about the coddling of the American mind, how precious people are today and their feelings. Oh my goodness, if you, if you happen to transgress and step onto someone's feelings, and, 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 and we, we have to be careful too because people today, and it creeps into the church, we're so aware, so aware of our personal boundaries. If someone encroaches, oh my goodness, what an offense. Cut that person off forever. So I don't love using the word sensitive because I think we generally tend to be sensitive about the wrong things. I think the Scriptures teach that. After all, I'm a man. I'm not sensitive at all, right? Uh, And this is not sensitivity, sensitivity training. But having said that, there are some things that we should be very sensitive to. In fact, men should be most sensitive to certain things, right? And so it's not that sensitivity is a problem. It's the real question is, what are we sensitive to? When I think of sensitive, I remember a time I was playing basketball with my friend. He was a Division II basketball player, 6'8", but very thin. In high school... I was ahead of him in the order, but by college he was in D2 and I was a nobody. And one time he, um, one time we were playing in the, you know, out in the playground and we were in college at this point, so. And he got the advantage over me and, and he had the ball and he had the advantage and, and he, he backed me under the hoop and he went up and I, I looked up. And I was right under the basket, and he dunked the ball, and it bounced directly off my face. That story has nothing to do with this sermon, but I knew you'd enjoy it, so I wanted to share it. Oh, I forgot to mention, I forgot to mention, God gives grace to the humble. That comes right after that passage there. In, in James chapter 4. In other words, when we're stuck and we're coveting and we're looking for that grace, how can we access it? By humbling ourselves. So I tell you this story to humble myself. At the time I got literally face dunked on. But I was playing him and I stepped on his foot at one point and I rolled my ankle so bad. It was black and blue and strange places. 
And uh, everyone that's taken experience knows the story. So dumb. <laughs> but I remember trying to sleep at night, and my, my ankle was so painful that I couldn't even bear the weight of the sheet. The sheet, as light as it was, it was, it was too much pain. So I had to pull the sheet off my foot, stick it out from under the sheet. And then my foot got cold. I mean, this is traumatic. And the point there is to say that it was, it was so sensitive. Hard for me to believe, but, but the pain was, was so real and my ankle so sensitive that just the weight of a sheet. You know, think of a hair trigger. You know, just touch it. And the gun fires. And that was a painful sensitivity, that ankle situation. But we're to become sensitive in another way a way that involves one another. And we're to become super sensitive in a way that involves one another. We're not supposed to be so sensitive to one another's sin. And this is the problem. Because in our sin, we're overly sensitive to others' sin. That's not to say that we're not rightfully offended at times. Because when someone wrongs us, that's why we call it a wronging. I mean, that's, it's wrong for them to do it. But, but there's also this biblical reality of overlooking. That's supposed to be a pretty big category. And when you take the sensitivity of the culture, and the church adopts that, combine that with the sinful nature, you end up sensitive to way, you know, way too many things, very wrong things. And we can be so easily offended and so sensitive to the wrong things. But we're not to be so sensitive to react like that to one another's sins. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. But we are to be exceptionally sensitive and quick to see the grace of God that's at work in one another's lives. And we're to react to that grace. We're to grow skilled at seeing that grace. That when God is at work and we see it, that we are sensitive to that, not to someone's sin, but to the grace that we see. The grace that the Lord is giving, the more grace that He gives continually to other people, to brothers and sisters. And when we see it, we're to be sensitive to that and skilled at seeing it. And we're to react to that grace with encouragement and honor. And the wonderful news, as I've already pointed out, is there's far more grace than sin. This is just true if we're a believer. And it's, tr it's true, maybe you haven't previously noticed this, it's true. But if you open your eyes, you'll see grace upon grace right in this room, right at the, among the members of Crossway Church, right among all of us right here. Miracles of grace, grace upon grace, degrees of grace, all kinds of grace, if we open our eyes and become sensitive to it. We can become very skilled at encouraging one another in it. And wouldn't that be a refreshing change, wouldn't it? Instead of being sensitive to one another's sins, constantly going around offended and offending. What if we all constantly went around encouraging one another in the grace of God? So Paul is an amazing example. The Corinthian church is a mess in the first century. Oh, they're not more of a mess than we are. Let's not uh, fool ourselves. But if you take your Bible, take your Bible, and let's just walk through some of 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's walk through some of this. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through verse through chapter 3, Paul is talking about divisions in the church at Corinth. And this is very serious. It's 
highly troubling. He's rebuking them. He's correcting them. He's not mincing words. He's not holding back. He is instructing them and correcting them because they're divided amongst themselves. Remember we talked about unity last week. It's a, it's a big deal. Well, he goes on into chapter 4, and he's talking about a lack of appropriate regard for, for apostles. So here he is uh, having the gospel from Jesus himself, and he's seeking to build up the church. And at the same time he's seeking to do that, he has to fight some members of the church because they are undermining his calling and his role among them. And so he has to instruct them on an appropriate regard for his role. And he's not going to give it up. And it's not like he, by the way, it's not like he's getting rich off the Corinthians. It's not like he's becoming a celebrity. The first century Corinth and, and Paul's time of ministry knows nothing of American evangelical celebrity culture. It knows nothing. It's such a different world. I think it can almost be impossible for us to imagine. I'm talking about a small group of people with very little in resources. Paul not taking it anyway. <laughs> and, and so there he is fighting, not so that he can become someone in their eyes, but so that they can have a faithful presentation of the gospel. It goes on from there. In chapter 5, do you know what he's going to adjust them on and correct them on and teach them about? There, there's a situation in the church. This, this happens sometimes and among members in the church where church discipline is so drastically needed. It's sexual immorality. You know, nothing new under the sun. There's sexual immorality in the church. And in this case... There's a, 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 a young man in the church who's with his stepmother. So probably a man in the church took a, a, a woman to be his wife, his second wife or his third wife, or who knows in that time. And she was probably younger because that wasn't uncommon in Greco-Roman culture. And so, you, you, you know, it's not, this, it's not necessarily a huge age gap. It's, it's not incest. You know, we're not talking about that. But it, but it is horrible because this woman married this man's father. And so Paul even rebukes him to say, not only is it sexual immorality, but it's, it's of a type that even the pagans don't put up with. And do you know what these Christians were doing? They were patting themselves on the back believing themselves to be loving and tolerant and wanting to show grace. Do you see how broken their understanding of tolerance and of love and of grace is? Paul doesn't mince words. He, he rebukes them in chapter 5. He tells them, look, this is, this is so ridiculous. Not even, the, the pagans don't even put up with this. Do you see how broken Christians can become? When we don't understand the scriptures, we think something is loving, then the world says, that's not loving, that's absurd. Now, today they might say it is loving, <laughs> right? But we don't take our cues from the world. And they're tolerating this immorality. Now, we could go on and on. You go through the whole text. I'll just point out one other to you. And that's in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. We talked about this before. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the most famous portion of the Bible. It's called the love chapter. It's often used in weddings. And rightly so, because it paints a picture of love that is incredible, helps us understand what Christ has done for us and what our love for one another should look like. But something that's important to recall about chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, is it's sandwiched between two chapters that are specifically talking about the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant Community Church. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's not a separate topic. It is the same topic. It's, it's teaching the Corinthians that the only way the use of the gifts of the Spirit are legitimate is if they're used in love for one another. 
That's the context of the love chapter. And it's all about the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul taking three chapters, this large portion, to teach them about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Because they're abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, they're, and in that, they're not loving each other. Now, as I said, we're no better than the Corinthians. Maybe in some areas we do better than them, and then in other areas I'm sure they've done better than us. So we're not here to condescend to the Corinthians or look at them and, and look back over the, the, the tunnels of history and say, oh, thank God we're not like them. That, that's not the point at all. Rather, it's for us to put ourselves or to see ourselves in the story in the right way. We're just like the Corinthians. And let me pause to say and to confess to you, I am very tempted to become self-righteous toward people that struggle, especially that struggle in ways that maybe I don't struggle with in the Christian walk. And when I hear about someone who's acting foolish and the impact that's making on their lives and how obvious that seems to be from Scripture, I'm tempted to think think things like, what's his problem? Why so foolish? Why doesn't he just change? And you can see the problem there, right? Why don't I just put all my sin aside? Why, Why aren't I completely perfected by now? And can you see yourself in that internal struggle? Are you tempted to be self-righteous? I can almost guarantee there are some areas where you look at others and you're tempted to be self-righteous. And we're not here to do that with the Corinthians or with one another. But instead of self-righteousness, let's see how the Apostle Paul interacted and engaged with those who were in significant, Christians in significant error, a local church in significant error, On several fronts, let's see how he engaged with them. And that brings us to the beginning of his letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. If I could have that next passage, please. Here's Paul writing. He knows what he's about to write. A long letter. But look what he writes at the beginning. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a massive, he's saying a massive amount here. He's pointing out massive grace. He's very sensitive to the grace of God in them, even though he knows where he's going in all this. Despite all the weakness in the Corinthian church, Paul thanks God for them and he commends them. So, for instance, regarding the spiritual gifts, did you notice, look up there at the screen, see if you can find the phrase, that they're not lacking in any gift. Not lacking in any gift. Now, see, I think a self-righteous response to the Corinthian church would be to say, you know, hit the buzzer, eh, you're all blowing it with the spiritual gifts. You know, you're walking around, you, you, you love what's spectacular, you want to be mysterious, you think that's more spiritual, uh, you're, uh, you're not loving one another, you're abusing these gifts, your gift privileges are pulled. No more spiritual gifts for you, you're just abusing them right and left. But he doesn't do that, does he? He teaches them how to properly leverage the spiritual gifts for the upbuilding out of love for others. But he doesn't pull their spiritual gift card. No, he actually sees the grace of God. Even though they're abusing the gifts, he says, you know what? There's a lot of spiritual gifts in your midst. You're using them wrong. I'm going to instruct you. You need to be rebuked. You've got to be corrected. We're going to fix that. But I'm so glad that there are gifts operating. You're not lacking any of them. Isn't that amazing? 
You see the grace of God? He sees the grace of God and he points it out to them. He's skillful at seeing it and he encourages them with it. It, it goes on. I mean, that, that's not the only one. You could, go through, you could go through all the abuses and you can come back to this and you could see Paul pointing out the grace of God. Sexual immorality. You know, they're, they're blowing it. They, they think they're spiritual when they're actually immature. Look, look what he says here. He says, the Lord's enriched you in all speech and all knowledge. So he's not just looking at that one instance where they're failing badly. He's going to rebuke them. He's going to correct them. He's going to instruct them. But he's also going to say, oh, your, your knowledge of the Lord, it's not flattery. Your knowledge of the Lord has brought you to salvation. And you proclaim him. You are enriched. See how he sees the grace. You are enriched in all speech and knowledge. And, and what about this one? What about the divisions that he made such a big deal of in the first few chapters? He, he's saying to the Corinthian church, this is a huge problem. And it's not, you know, we're one body. We're one in Christ. We ought to be unified in him. We have to deal with these divisions. But he tells them here that they are guiltless. They will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he sees the divisions. He sees the other problems. He sees the other sins and weaknesses. But he says that the testimony of our Lord was confirmed in you and therefore you stand in him justified and I am confident that he will grow you all the way till the final day. And you'll stand in Christ Jesus and be guiltless in him. Now oh, that is glory. That is grace. That's someone who's skilled to see grace. Well, we need to see that grace we need to identify it and we need to communicate it. This can be hard for our flesh because we're not always longing to give honor to others, but wow, we long to be honored. You ever have that, that, uh, that feeling when you're in a crowd, you know, you're in the crowd and, and the, the person up front is speaking there and they start, to, they start to talk about someone out there who deserves a lot of honor because of the way they've served and how they've sacrificed and they've done this for everyone else. Now tell the truth, not out loud, but to yourself. Hasn't it risen in your heart? I wonder if he's talking about me. And you know, the, as he's speaking, or she's speaking, the clues are there, and there's no way it could be you. And yet, you're still thinking, I, I wonder if it's me. It, it should be me. Oh, well, maybe, maybe it shouldn't be me, but... But really, it should be me. They should make that big of a deal about me. I've had that. Have you ever had that? Don't put your hand up. But we, that's what we do. We long to be honored because of pride. But we're to become skilled at seeing the grace of God at work in others. And by God's grace, we will. We will. Since he gives more grace we will give more encouragement. Finally, encourage one another with his grace. I do apologize for going a little bit longer. I realize I'm speaking a little more slowly today, and I hope it's not lulling you to sleep. <laughs> I will try to be a little more brief here on this last one, for your sake. Encourage one another with his grace. Last week we talked about how important it is to be together. And once we're together, this is simply one of the most critical things we can do for one another is to encourage one another with His grace. We have to speak it now. We have to engage it. We have to see it. We have to be sensitive to His grace. And then we have to leverage it. We have to speak it. We have to put it into play. We have to engage it. It's a critical part of how we stir one another up to love and good works. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25? We talked about that last week. And we talked about how do we, we want to consider how can we stir, one, what can I do to stir you up to love and good works? Well, here's one of the ways I can do it. I can look out for the grace of God. I can be sensitive to it 
knowing that it's there, become sensitive to it, and then I can speak it in a word of encouragement where I see it. I can encourage you with it. And encouragement is not simply telling someone that they're gifted, that they've done a good job. It it is that. That's part of it. Or they have a good attitude or they persevere, whatever. And sometimes that's enough that, you know, we don't need to uh, preach a sermon every time we encourage someone. But it, it really is more than that. Encouragement begins with that sensitivity, not to sin right, but to God's grace. Continues through to pointing it out, to, to identifying it, pointing it out, that grace in another brother or sister's life and commending them for their engagement with that grace and blessing them because God has blessed them with that grace. You're pointing out the grace of God behind the good that the person's experiencing or the, the good that they're doing or the good that they're speaking or the good that they're involved in or the good attitude that they have. Encouragement begins by looking at the grace of God that we see But it doesn't stop there. It it doesn't become encouragement until it's spoken. There's the power to give life in our words. Encouragement sees that God is the one behind the good. He's the giver of the grace. It understands, encouragement understands that unless God compelled by His grace, there wouldn't have been a good deed or a good action or a good attitude Encouragement demonstrates that God's at work in us. It reminds one another of that great truth. And encouragement means that God will never stop making us into the image of His Son. Encouragement acknowledges that. Reminds everybody, God's not going to stop. He's not done with us yet. Praise Him, He's not done with us yet. So a few examples. You know, someone repents a little more quickly than they did in the past. Goodness gracious, you know... Sometimes I wrestle with something, you know, I, I, I know I, it was wrong, but, but they shouldn't have done that thing. Or people don't understand how hard this is. And, and I drag my feet to the, to the cross and I finally kneel and repent, right? Do you ever do that? Well, you know what, if I grow a little bit, if we grow, if you grow a little bit, and, you say, and, and instead of dragging your feet to humble yourself, and receive the grace of God. Instead of doing that, you say, you know what? I was wrong. That was sinful. Let me acknowledge it and throw myself on the mercy of God. There's grace there. There's grace. There's there's grace in the repentance and there's grace in a, a quicker, easier repentance that we should be learning as we grow in Christ. Think about it. If someone receives critique with gratitude and consideration, you know, you, 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 you're in that position. You have to give that critique. And, and what you experience from the person is, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not sure I see that. I'm not sure you're right. But I'm going to think about what you said. I might even ask a few people I'm close to if they see validity in what you're saying. Oh, my goodness. We should be jumping up and down, right? Isn't that God's grace? I mean, how many times have we been defensive in response to critique. That's the natural human response, right? And so if someone receives it with some consideration, some gratitude, let us rejoice. Let's point it out right there. God's grace is at work in you. Or if someone faces some difficulty, sometimes much difficulty, with some evidence of faith in God's goodness. I mean, it makes sense when people are suffering that they would, they would communicate their sorrows, their, their complaints, right? That we understand that. We're not going to jump all over them and say, how dare you complain in a time of sorrow and struggling? We're not going to do that. But if someone faces that, with some faith. If in the midst of their sorrows they lift up their eyes, I say, I know God's good. I don't feel it right now. I think of our members that have lost children. I think of our members that face tremendous health challenges, have faced tremendous health challenges. I think of our members that have lost loved ones, and yet they remain in Christ. Oh, shouldn't we be gathered around them and pointing out God's grace to us, praising the Lord. Oh, you have faith. You persevered. Look at God's grace to you and how you responded. Here's a catch-all. 
I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean it in the way that we can all grow and say, if I, I, okay, I want to grow in, in, in seeing God's grace, being sensitive to it, and then speaking it. Here, here you go. Anytime you see the fruit of the Spirit active, even in a small degree, anytime you see the fruit of the Spirit active in the life of a brother or sister, you can point out God's grace. Why? Because it's a fruit not of their greatness, not of their virtues, of the Holy Spirit operative in them. All right, here we go. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to recite together the fruit of the Spirit. Here's a tip. Maybe you learned the fruit of the Spirit through a song as a child, and that's how you can remember it. Just got a text, someone saying, you're going too long. Should I look at my text? Is it someone that knows and is like, this is important. You really need to look at this right now. Or, or is it spam text? We'll find out. Let's take a look. I want to make sure it's not an emergency. And it's not. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Ready? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All right. I knew I didn't know it. I only involved you to hide my my lacking. Well done. Thank you very much. Whenever you see the fruit of the Spirit, you see someone be gentle. You see someone be kind. you You see someone be loving. You see someone be patient. Point out the grace of God to them and encourage them with that. Encourage them with it. Well, I want to ask the ushers to come. And, I, and, and for the sake of time, I won't go into First Thessalonians 2 here, but you might want to jot it down and look at that later. Since he gives more grace, we will give more encouragement. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.